0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our Thursday live chat, or at least it's Thursday for me. I know we have a global audience, people watching and listening all over the world, And of course, there's a lot of other people who tune in to this question and answer program after it's already been recorded. But for me, it's Thursday, 12 o'clock, noon, on the West Coast of the United States. And if we've never been introduced before, my name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join me today. What we do here on Thursday afternoons is uh, we have a question and answer time where I respond to questions that come in on the live chat. And you might ask, well, who am I? Hey, that's a valid question. Uh, If you do know me outside this YouTube channel, you might know me from my online Bible commentary. For more than 25 years, I've had a Bible commentary online. And at this point now, it's a commentary on the entire Bible, uh, verse by verse. And I think one of the qualities of it is that I I believe it takes the Bible seriously enough to where people who have been pastors, teachers, Bible study leaders... Uh, Sunday school teachers for for decades many of them find it helpful but then also people who are just reading the Bible for the first time or teenagers they also find it helpful and uh, because it's written in just clear simple language you can find my commentary at enduringword.com now I'm going to say this a few times today but I want to make sure that I get it in there will be no question and answer program next week. Next week, it's Thanksgiving. And here in the United States, I don't know what country you're viewing this from, but in the United States, we have a holiday on the fourth Thursday of November. It's really a pretty good holiday. It's supposed to be giving thanks to God for his blessings uh, upon our nation, upon our communities, upon our families. And hopefully that gratitude will also lead to a sense of repentance as well, which is very appropriate in the United States at this time. All right, let me get now to our lead question. While I welcome our TWR 360 audience, welcome Transworld Radio 360 folks, so pleased that you could join us today, and let me jump right into our lead question, which is, is replacement theology biblical? Now, I'm not going to read a specific question, because this question has been coming in from a lot of different people, both on comments, on YouTube videos on uh, emails that we've received, uh, responses to social media. Again, the question is, is replacement theology biblical? And let me just say, the idea of replacement theology goes by different names. Some people call it replacement theology. And it's interesting, as I'll speak in just a moment, some people are offended by that title, but not everybody. (laughs) There's there's more than a few people out there say, absolutely, replacement theology, the church replaces Israel. Uh, More theologically, it's known as supersessionism, where the church supersedes Israel. Many people today, not everybody, but many people prefer to call it fulfillment theology. In other words, they they don't want to claim the idea that the church replaces Israel, but rather more that the church fulfills Israel. Or sometimes say, it's not the church that fulfills Israel. Some people try to present the case that Jesus fulfills Israel. Uh, But the bottom line is simply this. It's the idea that Israel, the Jewish people, are no longer a chosen people. Now, those who believe in replacement theology sometimes don't like the term. They see it as a loaded, biased term. They will often prefer the term replacement or, excuse me, fulfillment theology So look, when I use the term replacement theology, I I hope you don't take it as being biased in that sense. Look, it's just the idea that, that God is finished with the Jewish people as the Jewish people. That's what it basically says. Replacement theology basically says, God is finished with Israel as Israel. Of course, they would say, individual Jews can become believers in Jesus Christ, just like everyone else. But God has no more place No more plan for Israel as Israel or with the Jewish people as the Jewish people. They would say this, that God, that the Jews have no greater place in God's plan than the Swedes or the Chinese or the Irish. The church is the new Israel. Therefore, replacement theology believes that the church replaces, or you could say fulfills, Israel in God's plan and promises at least regarding the promises of blessing that are made to an obedient Israel. Now, look, let let me just be straight up with you. Replacement theology has dominated Christian theology throughout the last 2,000 years. Throughout history, it's been the dominant form of how the church has regarded Israel. Roman Catholics strongly believe in replacement theology, They believe that they, that is the Roman Catholic Church, has indeed replaced Israel. And I would estimate, look, this isn't scientific, but I'm just going to give you my estimation. I would say that 80% to 85% of all Christians in the world belong to churches that teach replacement theology. Now, what this basically means is that even though the Bible says that God chose Israel, then at a later point god unchose the jewish people look you remember what it says in deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6 let me show you that verse for you are a holy people to the lord your god the lord your god has chosen you to be a people for himself a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth now friends here god says that israel's a chosen nation now i would be very specific about what Israel was chosen to. Nobody ever found salvation merely by being a part of ethnic or genetic Israel. No, they had to be justified by faith just as Abraham was. Abraham was justified by faith. And even though God has a special covenant, a special plan, a special purpose, a chosen role for Israel in his unfolding plan of the ages. It doesn't mean that every Jew, of course not. Every Israel person, either in the Old Testament or in the present day, is saved. No, of course not. But yet, God specifically said that his covenant with Israel was everlasting. Those who believe in replacement theology really do believe that God's everlasting covenant with Israel was canceled in AD 70, that's the most commonly given date. Look, there, there can be some people, well, it was AD 120, uh, it was AD 33 when they first uh, didn't receive Jesus. From Messiah. Whatever, let's just say AD 70. But this is what they say: They said God's promises that he would make an everlasting covenant with Israel. Those who believe in replacement theology really believe that promise had an expiration date. I make an everlasting covenant with you that will expire in AD 70. Now, we should remind ourselves that the many Old Testament prophecies that God made for Israel regarding their restoration and their exaltation were not canceled out, nor were they fulfilled in AD 70. After all, Genesis chapter 9 verse 16 describes an everlasting covenant that God would not destroy the world again with a flood. Friends, that that wasn't a everlasting covenant made with an expiration date. So when God makes another everlasting covenant in Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, describing the everlasting covenant that God would give the genetic descendants of Abraham, a special relationship and the land of Israel. When I say the genetic descendants of Abraham, I mean the covenant the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis chapter 17, verse 19, again describes this covenant as an everlasting Lasting covenant. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 17 and 18. Psalm 105, verse 10 and 11. Describe again God's everlasting covenant with Israel. Let me show you some of those verses here. I'm taking a look here, uh, Psalm 105, beginning at verse 9. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an ever. Lasting covenant saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. Now, friends, I, I earnestly believe that this obviously has more to do than just with the spiritual covenant of, of righteousness by faith that Abraham exhibited. Because this is an everlasting covenant that has to do with land, with an allotment of an inheritance. And friends, when we just encounter a passage like this, this isn't primarily a matter of eschatology, it's a matter of hermeneutics. How do we understand what the Bible says? Those who believe in replacement theology or fulfillment theology, they believe that in Psalm 105 verses 9, 10, and 11, everlasting doesn't mean everlasting, Israel doesn't mean Israel, land doesn't mean land, and inheritance doesn't mean inheritance. There's many similar passages. Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 35 through 37 speaks clearly that the seed of Israel shall be a nation before him. And it uses the term forever. And then there's many Old Testament passages that explain that God will bring together Israel, even referring to the people of the northern kingdom, Israel, and the people of the southern kingdom, Judah. God promised that he would do this. Now, listen, I would just say I simply believe that God still has a plan for Israel as Israel, for the Jewish people as the Jewish people. We believe this because we believe that when he chose a Babylonian idol worshiper named Abram and when he made a covenant with him and his descendants, God meant it regarding both the choice and the covenant. And for those who believe in replacement theology or fulfillment theology, whatever you want to call it, they would have to say that God chose Israel. Then he unchose them. I want to walk you through a passage I think is very relevant to this. And I'm going to try to to work through this quickly so that we have plenty of time uh, for questions. Uh, but, But I think this is important. Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'm going to begin at verse one here. Check this out. Now to come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. You see this? This is after those uh, amazing and, and remarkable chapters in the book of Deuteronomy that have to do with the blessing and the cursing that God promised to Israel under part of the Old covenant that was an essential part of the old covenant, the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant that God made with Israel. And God said that that all these things would come upon Israel, both the blessings and the cursings. And from the height of blessing during the reigns of David and Solomon to the depth of the cursing at the fall of Jerusalem, Israel's history has been a legacy of either being blessed or cursed under the terms of the old covenant. And God said simply this, "When, when you're distributed, when you're exiled, when when you're cast out to all the nations, and when you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, uh, there's going to be a great diaspora when they remember the promises, the blessing and the curse. This is what God says that he will do next. Look at this. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice According to all that I command you today, you and all your children with all your heart and with all your soul. You you see here, God says that Israel will return to the Lord and God will bless them. And and as it says in verse three, he would bring them back from captivity. Let's take a look at that here. Verse three of Deuteronomy chapter 30, that the Lord, your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now, look, I I know what many people say when they say this. Well, David, this was fulfilled in the return from exile from Babylon. But but listen, this was only fulfilled in part then. I would say that the ultimate fulfillment of this would have to wait until the 20th century when God would regather Israel in the promised land. And it's undeniable that the modern regathering of Israel is a larger, broader, more sovereign, and more miraculous restoration than what was recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah. You see, the modern regathering of Israel more accurately fulfills the promise than the return from the Babylonian exile. Friends, today, Israel is populated from Jewish people from all over the world, virtually every country. And the breadth of the promise is important because God repeats the idea in verse four. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse four. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there, the Lord, your God will gather you. And from there, he will bring you. Friends, let me just say that was not fulfilled in the return from the Babylonian exile. It just was not, period. And many people have seen this not just dispensationalists in the modern age. I've got a great quote. I'm not going to go into it right now from Adam Clark, who was an Anglican preacher around 1811. He says very clearly, no, this could not have been fulfilled in the return from the Babylonian captivity. This had to be fulfilled in a future restoration. Because this is what God says in verse five, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Friends, I'm just going to tell you straight up, that does not apply to the regathering after the Babylonian captivity. Because in the gathering from the Babylonian exile, in that return, Israel was still a vassal state of the Persians. But in the modern regathering Israel, you shall possess it, is literally fulfilled. And by the way, it had to be in that land. It says very plainly that it would be in that land God would do it. Verse 6 says, the land which your fathers possessed. That's a very clear, very powerful. Actually, that's in verse um, verse 5. It says, the land which your fathers possessed. It couldn't have been anywhere else in the world. And God said that he would prosper and multiply Israel more than the fathers. Friends, I'm telling you straight up, the prophecy of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 6, was not fulfilled in the return from the Babylonian exile. It was fulfilled in 1948. And look at this last aspect, the spiritual gathering of Israel here. Verse 6. And the Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord with all your heart, God, with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Friends, as remarkable and prophetically meaningful as the modern regathering of Israel is, it's incomplete. The spiritual dimension of that gathering has not yet been accomplished. There's no doubt about it. Today, Israel is largely a secular nation. Yes, there's a respect for the Bible as a book of history and as a national identity, but there is not, and there has not been, a true turning to the Lord God, particularly as a nation. That's just the facts on the ground in Israel since 1948. And not even the religious or the Orthodox Jews have completely turned to the Lord. No, though they have an important and precious part in God's plan for Israel in helping a spiritual consciousness for the Jewish people to survive through the centuries of the diaspora, they have not truly turned to the Lord. We can say this because the character and the nature of the Lord is perfectly expressed in his Messiah, Jesus. Jesus said, he who believes in me, believes in not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me since the Jewish people, except for a precious remnant, reject Jesus, they're rejecting the Lord God. But friends, the promise of God still stands. And as the final aspect of the promise to regather Israel, God will restore them spiritually. That spiritual restoration has not happened, but here in the Deuteronomy account, the idea of circumcising the heart, that's mentioned last. And the same idea is repeated several other places in the scriptures. Friends, you might ask yourself, David, if it's so obvious to you, why isn't it obvious to everybody? Why are there people who so strongly believe that God has divorced Israel, that He's finished with them forever, that they have no more place in God's plan than the Swedes or the Chinese or the uh, or the Irish? Well, basically. They rely on the concept of spiritual Israel, which is a real and, and, and accurate characterization. Paul talks about it very specifically in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, but they mistakenly think that these truths cancel out God's prior promises to Israel. That those promises make the chosen people unchosen. Friends, we need to be very careful with this. Look, I I don't know if you're aware of this, but through the centuries, the church that is institutional Christianity has had a shameful record of anti-Semitism and horrible persecution against the Jewish people. Now, let me say this very clearly. It would be unfair to accuse all people who believe in replacement theology or fulfillment theology of anti-Semitism. And they're often very sensitive regarding this accusation. And I get that. But it is true, absolutely true, that all replacement theology people are not anti-Semitic. Absolutely true. But it's also true that virtually all Jew-hating Christians have been replacement theology people. If I believed in replacement theology, which I don't, I would be offended if someone assumed that that made me automatically to be anti-Semitic. But I would also take great care that I never gave anyone a reason to think that that was true of me. There are some voices in the replacement theology camp that have scary attitudes regarding Israel and the Jewish people. And it's worth it for folks like me and other people to call it out, say, no. I understand where you get that biblical. I don't think you're crazy for believing. I understand the scriptures where you build this on, but you're not looking at the script. This is what you're not doing with the scriptures. You're not rightly dividing them. And that's what the Bible tells us to do, to rightly divide the word of truth. Well, friends, that's it for my response here to the idea is replacement theology biblical. I would just say no. Replacement theology, supersessionism, fulfillment theology, whatever you want to call it, it's it's not biblical. I understand how they make the biblical case. I don't think those who believe it are crazy, but I don't think they're right. I think there's a very important thing for us to understand. Well, thank you uh, for the time for that. Now let's take a look at questions that have come in on the live chat. Here is a question from He is returning soon. Who asks this? Do believers enter the kingdom of God now spiritually in Christ? Uh, God bless you. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you. He's returning soon. Well, I I would say absolutely yes. Believers enter the kingdom of God now spiritually in Jesus Christ. Yes. uh, Here's a good definition that I've heard about the kingdom of God. Again, I'm not saying that says everything that there is to say about the kingdom, but I think it says a lot. Okay, ready for this? The kingdom of God is wherever the reign of Jesus Christ is recognized and uh, the benefits of his reign are received. Now, we certainly understand there is a sense in which God reigns over all things right now. God isn't leaving things to their own accord. God is moving history in every detail to his desired conclusion. Absolutely, positively, yes. But I think anybody, if anybody tells me that the kingdom of God will not be more materially present and evident, more manifest in the future than it is now, then I would just have to question what you believe about the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is a present reality, not only spiritually, but mainly spiritually. And yes, you can say that believers, Christians are citizens of the kingdom of God. We come out under the kingdom of darkness and we come into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. Hope that helps you there. He's returning soon. By the way, I like your screen name there. Uh, Next one comes from uh, Soyadra. Hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. So Roger says, Blessings, Pastor David. I've been studying your videos on church history. (coughs) Excuse me. Do you mind explaining a little bit more about how the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church started and how? well soyadra I don't know how much i I talk about it in the videos I'm sure I must refer to it somewhere but soyadra it it happened over a long process and and basically the bishops the leaders they were called bishops of the church in certain cities in the ancient Roman Empire became more prominent and more important these are the old um Patriarchal, the old uh, the old uh, cities that, that were noted. Uh, the the word escapes me right now at the moment. Uh, but you're talking about Rome. You're talking about Constantinople. You're talking about Alexandria. You're talking about Antioch. You're talking about Jerusalem. These uh, these cities where the leaders, the bishops, the overseers of the church in those cities uh, became more influential than a leader of the church in a small, fairly insignificant city. It just makes sense. Well, among those uh, cities where they had more uh, authority, uh, Rome asserted itself as being the greatest among them. And so it was a long process of the bishop of the Christian church in Rome asserting his authority over the Christian world. Now, look, there were many times, especially in the early centuries, where when the Roman bishop attempted to do this, uh, church leaders in other parts of of the world said, forget it. You don't have any authority over us. But again, the Roman church just kept asserting that. And then when the Roman empire fell in the West, the Roman bishop and the church was one of the few institutions that still had organization, that still had a, a, a structure that could help guide society. And that uplifted the uh, prominence of the Bishop of Rome even more so. That's a very brief and incomplete description, but it's all rooted in the, in the idea that the Bishop of Rome has authority over everybody in the Christian world, which is an idea that I don't believe in at all. But you got to understand, that's the most fundamental title of the Pope. The Pope is the Bishop of Rome. His congregation is Rome. But the idea is, in Roman Catholic thinking, that the Bishop of Rome has this authority over the church in general. So I hope that's helpful there for you, Sayadra. Uh, Matt has a question. Um, is the Calvary Stockholm Church connected to Calvary Chapel movement in the USA, Matt? It is, and uh, it's been several years since I had a conversation with Pastor Joe, who is the pastor there. Uh, but uh, yes, it is connected with the Calvary Chapel movement in the USA. However, you should know that um, Calvary Chapel churches uh, are not rigidly the same from place to place. Uh, each church is independent and autonomous. So, the personality of the local community, the local pastor, the local leadership of the church has a lot of influence on just the the ministry and sort of the personality of the church. But yes, uh, Pastor Joe there in Stockholm, Calvary, Stockholm was started as a Calvary Chapel church and uh, is still um, associated with Calvary Chapel worldwide. Thank you for that question there, Matt. Next question comes from Adonis, who asks: uh, Does Second Corinthians chapter three, verses thirteen through eighteen, teach that faith and repentance precede regeneration, since turning to the Lord precedes the heart's veil being removed? Here it is: Second Corinthians chapter three, starting at verse thirteen. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. Um, Adonis, I would say that that definitely is a passage that supports the idea that faith and repentance precede regeneration. This is my belief. Uh, One of my fundamental disagreements with Reformed theology, where I... I need to say this again and again. Friends, I don't consider myself anti reformed theology. I've received too much good from good Reformed pastors, preachers, commentators, writers, people from history. I've received a lot of good from them. Yet, nevertheless, I can receive good from certain people without recognizing there's certain areas of doctrinal disagreement. And I would disagree with Reformed theology on several points. And one of the main points I would disagree is the idea that Reformed theology teaches that a person is born again before they believe. And I just don't think that that's the natural way that the New Testament presents that. And this passage that you're referring to here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Adonis, speaks to that because it says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, look, I absolutely believe That someone cannot come to God on their own accord. God must do a prior work in them. I just think that the best way to understand it and fit things together is that prior work is um, a work that God must do, but it is not regeneration. A person believes and then they're born again. I think that's a simple and straightforward way that the scriptures present it. We don't tell people, well, wait to be born again and then believe. Why don't we tell people that? Because that's not how the scriptures present it. And look, even if it were true that a millisecond before a person believed they were born again, uh, that's not how God wants us to think about it. He wants us to think that we believe and then we're born again. That's how the scriptures naturally present it. So we don't want to ignore the prior work that God must do. No one comes to the father unless the spirit draws him. The scriptures are very clear about that. But again, the natural way that the scriptures present the idea of regeneration, being born again, is that a person believes and then they're born again. And again, I would say, if it were true that regeneration happens a millisecond before faith, God doesn't want us to think like that. He doesn't want to think to a crowd and say, hey, whoever just got born again, then believe. No, that's not the idea. It's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You will be born again. Thank you for that question there, Adonis. Next question comes from Eastward, who asks, would you say that covenant theology, replacement theology is selfish at its core? Wow, Eastward. Okay, I'll just be straight with you. That's not the terminology I would use. When I think covenant theology, I don't immediately think selfish. When I think covenant theology, I think non-biblical. Friends, I think about this a lot, but it's kind of taken me a long time. I'm I'm busy with so many other projects, but I I really need to to put out video or some kind of writing on what I think is incorrect about covenant theology. And I can just summarize it very quickly this— Said it's not biblical. It's just not biblical. What covenant theology would have us believe is that there are these grand, all important, overarching covenants that God has made with humanity, a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. Although sometimes they'll disagree with me about the covenant of works, but let's just say there's a covenant of works and a covenant of grace that God has made with all of humanity and and that these are all important and that the way to understand everything that God does in his plan of the ages, there's just one problem. God makes no clear reference to them in the scriptures at all, just none. God knows how to use the language of covenant. He talks about the covenant that he made with Noah. He talks about the covenant he made with Abraham, the covenant he made with Israel and Mount Sinai, the covenant he made with David, the new covenant. Oh, God's very good at talking about covenants, but somehow he just neglected to explain anything about this covenant of works or the covenant of grace. And, and when I read covenant theologians, they act like this is some minor flaw. Ah, you know, whatever. It's not mentioned much or whatever at all, really. They they look at it if you were to give an analogy as of an automobile. They look at it as like a little scratch on the paint of the car. Ah, it's not mentioned. Look, I don't see that as a scratch. I think that the engine's blown, the car won't drive. It's not mentioned biblically. It's purely a construct of systematic theology. Not Biblical theology, at least in my view. Now, look, I understand there's an important role for systematic theology. I'm certainly not against all systematic theology, but uh, systematic theology should be subservient to biblical theology. All right, now that, so I don't think about selfish when I think about covenant theology, I think unbiblical. Replacement theology, Look, God bless my brothers and sisters who believe in replacement theology. But what they have simply done is they've taken certain New Testament passages and used them to cross out Old Testament passages and promises. And and here's how I would explain how we should understand in general those Old Testament promises. Is that those promises can never mean less than they meant to the original receivers of the promise. But they can mean more. In other words, uh, replacement theology or fulfillment theology people, they often like to say, well, the promises of the land are fulfilled in that God gives the whole earth to his people. Okay, well, look, even if one were to say that's true, and I think that's a debatable prospect, but even if you were to give that as being true... It doesn't eliminate the meaning of the promise originally because there's no doubt originally the promise of the land, repeatedly in the Old Testament, talked about a real land that God gave to the people of Israel, to the Jewish people, period. So a promise can mean more. Its its application can be expanded by the work of God, but it is never eliminated, not the truth of the prior promise. So when I think of replacement theology, I don't think selfish. I just think that um, it's not rightly dividing the word of truth. So that would be my perspective. Thank you again for that uh, eastward. He is returning soon. Is Zechariah 12.10, the spiritual restoration of Israel at Christ's second coming. Yes. Let me read that. You put the verse right here for us. So thank you. Uh, Zechariah 12.10, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. By the way, let me just stop right there. House of David, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Look, I'm just telling you, folks, there's people who read that and say, oh, well, that means Christians. I don't know what to say. When people approach the scriptures that way, I think there's a real hermeneutic problem there. House of David doesn't mean house of David uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem doesn't mean inhabitants of Jerusalem. Okay. Let me start again. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. He is returning soon. I think this very is one of the precious passages in the Old Testament that says exactly what Romans says, that all Israel will be saved. Again, doesn't mean every last person that's of Jewish heritage, but what it means is just as much today as the Jewish people are understood to be a Christ rejecting people, and as a whole, they are, no doubt about it. God says there will come a day when as a whole, they will be understood to be a Christ accepting people. They will trust in Jesus, their Messiah. And passages such as Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, are so clear and so powerful in the way that they tell us that God is not finished with the Jewish people as the Jewish people. That God has an enduring and a continuing role for the Jewish people in his unfolding plan of the ages. <laughs> Look, m- maybe there's some people, I I would regard them as somewhat as nut jobs. Maybe there's some people out there who say, oh, well, that means that people are saved and will go to heaven just because they're Jewish. No, nobody has been saved and gone to heaven just because they were Jewish. Not in the Old Testament, not today. No, salvation is a matter of righteousness. And we believe God and righteousness is inherited, excuse me, is, is, is we're justified by that. Uh, righteousness is credited, accounted to the person who believes in God, who believes him, not just believes in his existence. So, no, we're, we're not trying to say that there's that there's uh, uh, two ways of salvation. No, no, not at all. What we're saying is that for God's awesome and unfathomable purpose he has chosen the jewish people to have an enduring role in his unfolding plan of the ages those who believe in replacement theology or fulfillment theology would say that role ended in AD 70 or 120 or whenever i would say no it has not ended and zechariah 12:10 is one of the passages that speak to that effect thank you for that question there uh, he's returning soon Uh, Here are a couple of questions about attitudes towards Israel. Navy asks this question, how do we approach a church member who has the belief that the current Israel is an anomaly? I I guess you mean by that just sort of accidental. And then Tyrone asks, if we hate the Jewish people and nation, can we consider ourselves to be true born again believers in Jesus Christ? Well, Navy and Tyrone, let me just be very straightforward with you. It is possible to be a Christian, to be a true Christian, and be in error about some significant things. What someone believes about the Jewish people is not, except for the rarest exceptions. But I would just say, generally speaking, what a person believes about Israel is not a salvation issue. It's just not. And a person can be born again, a person can be saved, and be in serious error, well, how should we treat people who are in serious error? We should treat them the same way we would want to be treated if we were in serious error. We want love. We, we would want to be maybe shown as uh, as persuasively, as convincingly as possible, our error. And we would want people to suffer long for us, with us. And so really, that's how I would say. Um, this is not a salvation issue, but it is a truth issue. And where it carries into how people would act towards the Jewish people. Look, it can be a very serious error. Look, I'm doing this from memory, so forgive me if I'm wrong in some of the details, but I'll just be bold enough to say it, hoping I remember it accurately enough. Look, in in the early days of the medieval church, one day a year, the Pope would command Jewish people in and around the region of Rome to march through the city or proceed through the city in a procession, carrying their scriptures. And when they arrived to where the Pope was, he would take their scrolls, kiss them, and he would say something to this effect, beautiful scriptures, cursed and wicked people. Friends, that's been the attitude of Christians against the Jewish people for a long, long time. And it's terrible. It's just not right. Christians should recognize the terrible anti-Semitism that has been present. But basically the the church's reasoning under the Roman Catholic Church, and not only the Roman Catholic Church, but a a lot of times the reasoning has been like this. Because of the Jewish role in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, they are a cursed people. That's the first premise they would say. Uh, Secondly, God would curse a people so that they would uh, come unto repentance. That's God's idea, is that they would feel the weight of their curses and come to repentance. Therefore, they would say, uh, the church is helping the Jewish people by cursing them, by afflicting them, by persecuting them, because they'll know just how cursed they are, and this will lead them to repentance. Can you imagine such erroneous, wicked, convoluted thinking? But that kind of thinking has dominated Christian practice for many centuries, and it's wrong. Now, as wrong as that was, I will say this, that it's possible to be a genuine believer and be in error about some important things, and that's how I would categorize this. So thank you there for your questions there, Navy and Tyrone. Next question comes from Paul, who asks, or says, rather, I'm terrified. I think that Luke chapter 11, verses 24 through 26 might have happened to me. Please give me guidance, pastor. Okay, well, let me read the passage here. Luke chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, and he goes through dry places seeking rest, and finding none, he says, I will return to my house, which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. And he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Paul, thank you for your question. Let me speak directly to you, friend. And I want to say to you directly, um, I'm not going to criticize you or condemn you for having this concern. If a person is demon-possessed or demon-harassed to a frightening degree... It's good for them to be frightened of that. It's good for them to be terrified. But you don't need to despair. Paul, let me just say very simply that if this is the case, there is power by what Jesus Christ did at the cross. In the book of Colossians, it says that at the cross, Jesus triumphed over principalities and powers. that's That's a New Testament way of referring to demonic beings and demonic spirits. And he says that he disarmed them. In the victory of Jesus Christ at the cross is your victory over every demonic power. So I think it's fine that you're concerned about this, but you do not need to despair, not in the slightest. Paul, just simply, in the name of Jesus, pray, repent, put your trust in Jesus. Jesus. And say, Jesus, I trust in your victory over every demonic spirit. Would you fill my life and my being with that victory? You don't have to work up the victory. No, 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 Paul. You can't do it. But Jesus has done it for you. Put your eyes on him. Put your faith in him. Don't put your faith in yourself and your ability to stand against the demonic. But throw yourself upon Jesus again and again. And you'll find victory. Paul, I'm going to pray for you very briefly. And then I'm gonna say one more thing before we go on to the next question. Lord God, we pray for Paul and we pray that you would enable him right now at this moment to fully put his trust in Jesus and his victory on the cross where every principality of power was disarmed in the life of the believer. Give him victory, Lord, and save him from any kind of despair. Let whatever fear he has drive him to Jesus and find peace and resolution in him. We pray this, Lord, for Paul in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, you should know that many great men and women of God throughout the century have felt very afflicted by demonic spirits. And there's a story that I love from Martin Luther. I love to talk about it all the time. Uh, you know, Martin Luther, that uh, it's said that one time Martin Luther uh, woke up in the middle of the night. And he felt that Satan was in the room. It's as if he could feel the hot breath of Satan breathing on his neck. And he woke up in a cold sweat just because of the presence of the demonic. And it said that Luther woke up, sat up in bed, looked over in the area of the room where he thought this presence was. And this is what Luther said. Oh, it's you. And then he laid down, rolled over, and went back to sleep. Luther realized whatever Satan might try to come against him to bring terror and to bring fear, that he was a defeated foe in Jesus Christ. And apparently Martin Luther had, uh, had battled under these things for so long that they had become somewhat commonplace in his life. I think about that often. I, w- I want to have that same kind of heart, that same kind of spirit that doesn't make light of the demonic... But just as, listen, we come against it with all strength, but it is, it is the strength of Jesus, not the strength of ourselves. All right. Next question comes from Philip, who says, would you agree with Jack Hibbs and other dispensational teachers from Calvary Chapel that call replacement theology, any form of preterism, blasphemous, demonic, and heretical? Um, Philip, I, I wouldn't use those words. I wouldn't say it's blasphemous. Um, I would say that replacement theology has been used by the devil to stir up persecution, Christian persecution of the Jewish people. And as far as it being heretical, look, it's incorrect. It's just wrong. Um, I believe, as I stated before, that Christians can be wrong about certain things and still be going to heaven. So I would not say blasphemous. I would say that the devil has used replacement theology to do a lot of damage against the Jewish people and among Christians. And I would say that it's a false teaching, a wrong teaching. Uh, I, I, Philip, I reserve the term heretical uh, for things that um, that matter for salvation. And so that, that's why I wouldn't call it heretical. All right. Looks like we've come to our lightning round. Folks, before we hit our lightning round, uh, allow me to remind you that we will not have a Thursday question and answer time next week. Uh, Today's the 16th, so it must be the 23rd. Next Thursday, we will not have a... We're going to take the week off. It's Thanksgiving here in the United States of America. So we won't be with you next week, but God willing, and if we live, we'll be with you the following week. Okay, here we go now. Um, Lightning round. Let's get after these as quickly as we can. Here we go. Mary Mary asks, please help clarify what's the difference between error and heresy? Okay, Mary Mary, I I would just say this. In in my, the way I organize it in my mind, and again, I, I may not be technically accurate in this, but I'll just tell you how I use the terms. Error, is a wrong teaching. Something that's wrong. Somebody understands something to be theologically wrong, biblically wrong. Heresy is applied to those things that, uh, if a person believes these things, they won't go to heaven. If a person teaches these things, they're sending other people to hell. And so, uh, for me, that's a way that I just sort of, uh, uh, categorize the difference at least in my own mind between error and heresy I, I know other people look at it different ways and you know I, I think that's when to have a discussion about but that's how I organize it in my head Mary uh, Alfredo asks what are your thoughts on relics are they idols Alfredo uh, if they're regarded as relics and not historical artifacts they're probably being treated as idols many many relics are treated as idols. And the whole trade in relics, especially in the Roman Catholic and and sometimes in the Eastern Orthodox communion of churches, uh, so much of that trade in relics is just fraud. It's fanciful. It's there's nothing else to call it but just naked fraud. So yes, it's idolatry, and uh, it's often idolatry and fraud. Uh, grandma says, "Hello, Pastor David." What are your thoughts on regarding churches who sing worship songs originating from NAR or Word of Faith churches such as Bethel or uh, Bethel or Elevation? Uh, Grandma, let me give a couple quick answers to this. Number one, I completely respect the wisdom and even the authority of an individual pastor or church leadership to make those decisions for their own congregation. So if a pastor or church leadership believes differently than what I'm going to tell you right now for their own congregation, I wouldn't question it. I I would just say, look, God's speaking to you or leading you, uh, speaking to your conscience about what's right for your congregation in your situation. I am of two minds about this, Grandma. Let me just explain very quickly why. Number one, I do believe in judging songs, judging works of art, if you want to say, by the work itself and not by the personal doctrines or holiness of the, um, of the, the author. And so uh, there have been some good songs, some good hymns of old. It is Well With My Soul is one of them that have been written by some pretty weird, freaky people, corrupt people. So, there's that. The thing that I think is most problematic about using songs from Word of Faith or Bethel or Elevation Churches is that you are supporting their ministry, at least in some way, by the licensing fees. Now, friends, I don't know how the whole licensing fee works today. I don't know if a church sings a song that comes out of Bethel, if that actually means that money goes to that church because this particular church sings a song. I I don't know how that works. But the fact that you would be financially supporting their ministry, to me, is a more problematic thing than the quality. Pastors and church leaders should give great care to the the theology of the songs they sing. Absolutely they should. But there's some songs that come out of these movements that, at least to my understanding, are solid theologically. And other songs use terminology that means one thing to the Bethel folks, but another thing to most every Christian, other Christians. So it, it's a problematic thing. I trust local church leadership to figure that out. Uh, Leo says this Pastor Guza, can you speak on the timeliness of the resurrection? Put in the tomb Friday evening, and the resurrection was on Sunday morning. How is that three days? Leo? It's just a clear biblical thing, both in the Old Testament and confirmed by rabbinical rabbis from New Testament times, that three days and three nights was a figure of speech that referred to any part of a day or night. And so um, it's like we, we would, uh, if we were to say, and this isn't a perfect analogy, but it's something like that. If we were to say in modern day time, um, a couple of days. Oh, well, you mean literally two days. You mean literally 48 hours by that. If it's any more or less than 48 hours, you're not telling the truth. No, we understand that when somebody uses the phrase a couple of days, they're using a figure of speech. The phraseology X days and X nights was known in rabbinic Judaism at the time to refer to any part of a day or night. And so if you have Friday evening, Saturday day, and Sunday morning, it fulfills what Jesus said with that figure of speech, three days and three nights. And again, you could look it up in my commentary. This is confirmed by rabbinical writings from the time. There are people who believe that Jesus was crucified on Thursday, and they make a big deal about it. But I would just simply say, that's not necessary to fulfill what Jesus said Uh, about three days and three nights. Hope that's helpful for you there, Leo. Another question from Alfredo. uh, Is a person considered half chosen if he or she is half Ashkenazi Jewish? What about a quarter percentage? Doesn't Titus chapter three, verse nine, tell us to avoid genealogies? Yeah, you know what, Alfredo? I I see the point here and I'll just give you a great big, I don't know. I would just say this, God knows. God knows who the Jewish people are. And, uh, you know, there's people do genealogy, DNA. Well, the people call themselves Jews today. They're not Jews at all. Listen, I don't buy any of it. But God knows. He certainly does. And so, you know, if a person is, you know, 132nd Jewish, does that mean that they're part of this covenant? Listen, I would just say God knows. Um, But I would certainly say this, that those who have some Jewish heritage and identify as Jewish... I wouldn't have any problem including them under that heading of, uh, of being part of Jewish. So, as for the, the technicalities of it, I, I would just say God knows. Um, Mary asks, when replacement theology is the foundation for most presented teachings of a church, what would should one do? And then Natural asks, although not a salvation issue, how do we respond to a church leader believing and teaching replacement theology? Well, really, th- th- look, it, it would be the same... As uh, a church leader, and I'm assuming this is a church leader that you go to, the church that you go to, um, would I go to a church that taught replacement theology? The, the answer would be only if I had no better options in a church. Look, I think replacement theology is an error, and it would really bother me if the pastor taught that. But if I was in a place where, still, nevertheless, even with that fault in a church if it was nevertheless the best church I could take my family to in within a reasonable travel distance, then I would go there. Look, we we all understand that when when it comes to churches, we somewhat have to make compromises. There's not going to be a perfect church. And of course, there's sort of a cliche, but it's a pretty good cliche. If you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because it won't be perfect anymore. You'll be its imperfection. So we get all that. But I would just say that Yes, I believe replacement theology is an error. If I attended a church and it was being taught there, it would bother me. I would probably try to say something to the pastor. But listen, if your pastor's teaching replacement theology, he's probably pretty decided about it. I would say it's pretty unlikely that he's going to go back and forth on it. He's probably pretty decided. And so you just kind of have to accept that and say, okay, um, is there a better church that I can commit my family to? If there's not a better one, then you should just stay at that one and say, well, I'll uh, swallow hard when he's talking about this. Okay, uh, Alfredo asks, third question, are there biblical expository churches in the state of Israel or only historical tourist churches? No, there are biblical expository churches in the state of Israel. Um, Yes, there are. I mean, listen, I'm drawing a blank on specific church names, but there are genuine believers and believers who teach the word, there are good churches in Israel. There's not enough of them, but there are good Bible teaching churches among both the Jewish population and the Arab population of Israel. We praise God for them. We want to encourage those pastors, both Jewish and Arab. They're doing a great work for the Lord in a difficult place. I would say there's not many, but there are, and we praise God for them. And our final question today comes from George, who asks, Pastor Guzik, Romans 11 speaks of Gentiles being grafted into spiritual Israel. Is there regeneration to those Jews who don't believe, yes or no? Well, George, I'll just answer very quickly. No. Regeneration, being born again, takes faith in Jesus Christ. The Jewish people are chosen... They have a place in God's plan. But that doesn't mean that each individual Jewish person is saved apart from their individual faith in Jesus Christ. Of course. So no, for them to receive the new covenant, they have to receive the one who instituted the new covenant. And the miracle of the New Testament is simply this. It says that it will happen. That as Paul says in Romans chapter 11, all Israel will be saved. That's our hope. That's our trust. It's God's promise. But they're saved by coming to faith in Jesus, their Messiah. There's not a separate track of salvation for the Jewish people. No. Hope that's helpful for you, George. And that's it for today, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so pleased that you could. And uh, I just simply want to say... Happy Thanksgiving, especially to all my American uh, uh, viewers. But even if you're listening to someplace, if you're listening to Europe or Africa or Asia or Latin America, I hope you can give thanks to God as well. I've got more than enough things to thank the Lord for. You, you can uh, uh, be thankful for the many things in my life if you feel that you don't have enough to be thankful for in your life. And one of the things I'm thankful for is our YouTube audience Thank you, everybody, so much for joining us. We're gonna be taking next Thursday off as it is Thanksgiving Day, but God willing, and if we live, we'll be joining everybody immediately afterwards. Thank you again so much for joining us, and God bless you. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.